Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Blitz. Happy almost 4th of July. It's a good time to go see movies, and a lot of times, it's when some of the big movies come out, or shall we say, swing in on a whip. It's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We're brought to you, of course, by the Bemidji Theater, where I will, I believe that's where I'm going to probably see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. You'll see me front and center on one of the first few nights. I'm Dave Brooks. I was about to reference that you were, no doubt, talking about Indiana Jones and building yourself up to that, because it's later this week that it's coming out. I'm Joel Hoover, by like the way. a bad penny. I always turn up. Yeah. There's especially, an Especially when it comes... To an Indiana Jones movie. That might come up today in in our episodes. There's a very, very good chance that'll come up in today's episode, which is totally unscripted, by the way. Dave and I do this. It is unscripted, unlike the majority of these movies that we watch. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit for today. It's worth also pointing out, uh, we will have a few spoilers forthcoming, so we're going to be kind of rapid fire with some of what we're talking about. But some things might give away things in movies you haven't seen yet, so if we start bringing up a movie that's on your queue list, you might want to cautiously fast forward over that part so you are forewarned Bemidji Theater we're right off of Highway 2 between Bemidji and Wilton by the way tell Missy and crew that Rick and Nick say hi we assume they send us a postcard but Dave and Joel do yes we say hi Rick and Nick I don't even know. They they've kind of gone dark for a few months. We haven't really heard. Oh, they much went down to them. Lakes Jam. The rain hit. They said they're stuck in the mud and they can't get out. So maybe we'll see them for the next show. I doubt it. Does anybody revel in their celebrity or their perceived celebrity more than those two? It's like uh, Charlie's Angels. You don't really see Charlie anywhere, but that's Rick <laughs> and Nick. <sighs> Hi, anyway. Rick. Hi, Nick. Hi, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> So Something let's like that. before we get into our big topic, uh, let's kind of bring us current events here real quick. Yes, please. Uh, the strikes continue. Uh, the the Directors Guild they've come up with a new contract, so that's done. The actors, the writers, that's another thing. The uh, writer the writers strike continues. The actors contract is at the end of June. It's coming up quick. It would be then if, so if it's stay the end tuned. of June because we're into the final week. Yeah, of stay it this week. So stay tuned. There could be vast, quick. Rapid-fire developments in this, but that's one worth keeping an eye on. The Flash is going down hard right now. Yes. So the opening weekend, it pulled in about $55 million at the box office and did pretty strong business. Last weekend, what we're just coming off of, $15 million. A huge nosedive for The Flash. So much so that you said they are thinking it's not even going to recoup the money that was put out to be able to make it work. Now, I don't know what the... the marketing budget alone they might not recoup. To say nothing about the cost of the yeah. film. Yeah. I don't know how the global numbers are looking, the worldwide numbers for The Flash, but needless to say, domestically, it fell very flat. They're thinking even the worldwide box office might not be enough to come back from the marketing budget because they only Indeed. take whatever percentage 
you know, theaters obviously take some, uh, other things get some, some of the back-end deals make some, but the theaters, or the uh, studio, Warner Brothers, not looking good. Now, it has performed better internationally than domestically, yeah. so it all adds up to a worldwide total, two weekends in, of about $211 million that it's at. So it's... It all depends on how you look at it as far as how they've done. You know, it's funny when you talk about Hollywood mathematics and accounting because that is beyond fabled to be ridiculously out of balance. Uh, a lot of hidden numbers, hidden figures, that kind of thing. But, I mean, this we talked about this before when we did our summer movie preview. Um, the Ezra Miller scandal, a lot of people think this is at the heart of why. I mean, the reviews on the movie are pretty good. Uh, not not stellar, huge, oh my gosh, it's not the Top Gun Maverick of 2023. It's not that, but it's very, very good and better than average. Some people think maybe the best superhero uh, movie ever. I mean, that's what I've heard. But a lot of people that I'm also hearing from don't want to go and support the movie simply because of the Ezra Miller thing to send the message. They just assume wait till it comes out on Max streaming service that they already pay for. They don't have to pay more for it. They don't have to support the movie, but then they could see it. Yeah, reviews were good. I, apparently it's light. It's got a good pacing to it. There's a lot of positive things there, even some surprises that yeah. are thrown in as well. But yeah, with all that's attached to it with Ezra Miller... It has left a lot of people in a conundrum of, do we go and watch this movie in theaters? If you are in the dark on Ezra Miller, he is the lead actor. He plays, uh, what's Barry's last name in The Flash? Barry Allen. Barry Allen, there we go. It was also The Flash. It was like Bruce Wayne Batman, Barry Allen, The Flash. Without getting way into it, you can Google it, but there's been assaults, there's been kidnappings. He basically started his own cult with him in the front. It, it's not gone well at all. This could be the end of his career, on it, possibly, and it's just a dark thing. You can Google it for more information, but uh, they have tried to distance themselves from him. He has not gone anywhere on publicity tours. The publicity for the movie was very, very small, and what was supposed to be a surprise with Michael Keaton coming back as Batman, they pretty much had to put that front and center because that was the big selling point of the movie because you couldn't promote Ezra Miller. The more quiet that was, the better. I hear the reviews are pretty good. It's up to you if you want to see it. But the other thing is, I don't think it's the reason, but I think it's going to have a factor, is they're just about to reset the whole DC cinematic universe. It hasn't really caught fire like the Marvel one has. Well, James Gunn, who's been working with the Marvel universe, most notably with the Guardians of the Galaxy, he's about to come in and take over the DC properties and reboot everything. So any high stakes from this movie on screen aren't really going to matter because they're all going to be wiped off the board and are going to go forward. Maybe the one exception might be the Supergirl character. Uh, Sasha Callie plays it. She's kind of a newcomer. She's a soap actress. This is her first big non-soap opera role. Did very well in the role. There's talk. There could be a Supergirl spinoff with her and her version of the character. So that's stay tuned. Yeah. it With that whole idea of a reset in play as well, that... It, Boy, DC has just had such a weird saga since they have tried to get into the uh, in, in into a little bit of a slice of what Marvel has been able to do. Yeah, it's been weird. If DC, you know, maybe DC is finally going to figure it out with this, but it might be too late. Even Marvel is showing cracks that the superhero bubble might be bursting. 
Question mark. We've questioned that for years on this podcast of when that's going to come about. We've known it's been coming, and just without going down a rabbit hole, but I think when we finish the Phase 3 for the Marvel Cinematic Universe with uh, Avengers Endgame, and then the Superman or the Spider-Man movie right after that. That was kind of it. That was a big, long, twenty what twenty-five movie arc. That was a heck of a journey. After every vacation, I want to sit back and relax. We're going to start it all over again, guys. Uh, phase four hasn't exactly lit on fire, except for Spider-Man. He's done pretty good, but I don't know whether this is going to continue or not. It's I don't know. We'll see. Speaking of Spider-Man, he's doing pretty well in an alternative kind of avenue that's been happening here with spider-man across the spider-verse which is doing awesome at the box office over 550 million worldwide in a relatively uh recent stretch that it's been on about three weeks or so domestically well over 300 million it's one of the biggest releases of the year and still going and still climbing when you only have three movies ahead of you in terms of worldwide for the year with Super Super Mario Brothers, which was enormous worldwide, Guardians of the Galaxy, and then Fast 10. Across the Spider-Verse is doing great, and it's proof that that avenue has a lot of legs to it right now, and of course with another movie that's on the way in the future. Yeah, they're talking about a third Spider-Verse movie, and it's a good one. I saw that one. Took the kiddo, and he and I loved it both. It was a, a good time. I like going to the movies. And you've talked about, and you discussed this in the last episode, the different versions that are well, out there now with the reworking that they did with the audio and some of the fixing that they did there, but Across the Spider-Verse has done awesome. It's proof that I still need to watch the first one. I, I need to get around to that here at some point. It's a good... The first one is good. I like, like the rule with sequels. The original is usually always better than the sequel. And I think that applies here. The first uh, Into the Spider-Verse, which is the first one, is, I think, a little better than the second one. But they're both really, really good. Well worth recommended to go see them. Uh, this one's still up on the big screen. It's number one. Probably not coming off for a little while. But uh, lots more down the pipe here coming for the summer of 2023. At some point, it will need to vacate the web so that others can get in. Yes, that's right. Some that we've discussed already previously with uh, with previous episodes and that we're going to discuss more in the future, too. I think that's about it for all the I current so. stuff. All right. So, yeah, in, in classic improv style, we make our transition into talking about our topic today. In case you haven't been able to pick up on what we're discussing today, this is kind of in line a little bit with our last episode where we talked about deleted scenes and we talked about content that's not made it into movies. Well, today we're talking about another content-related topic, and it's stuff that's in movies, but stuff that's been was never meant to somewhat be. off script. Yes, that maybe wasn't exactly planned for or was improved a little bit. Improvisation, it, sometimes you can pick up on something and go hey, that doesn't seem like it was really intended to be in there. That that seems a little bit out of place, or it seems maybe like it was almost too natural the way that it was acted, and then you find out later, yeah, that wasn't in the script, and it's like, well, that makes total sense because improv in movies is sometimes right under our nose, Dave, but there's a lot of it that's out there. When you start combing it back and you start digging into things a little bit, it's fun to discover when moments in movies that that we've seen or are aware of were actually not exactly planned for. I mean, we could go down this forever and ever. 
So there's going to be a lot of, you know, doesn't quite fit the narrative of what we're talking about, but it requires and is deserving of an honorable mention. Uh, one of those would be the original Blair Witch Project. There's no script for that movie at all, nor was there ever intended to be. It was the actors who went out there. They knew generally what was going to happen, but not specifically. And the filmmakers were off camera, like a campsite ahead of them. And would leave them notes, okay, this is generally what you're going to do. And then the other actors didn't know which each specific actor was going to do. They just had to respond to it. And so that's kind of the way it worked. Was that the way it was meant to be? So it was intended to be non-scripted, yes, but still officially non-scripted. That's not, well, I guess it is now because we just talked about it, but call it an honorable mention. Um, there's other examples where somebody will come up with a line or something right then and there, maybe not as the camera was rolling, but just before. One of the famous examples of that is when Harry met Sally. There's the big scene where, uh, uh, hang on to yourselves, where Meg Ryan fakes the orgasm in the restaurant with Billy Crystal. And then right after that, another diner at one of the tables says, I'll have what she's having. And by the way, the actress that said that isn't really an actress. That's director Rob Reiner's mom. And Rob Reiner came up I with I think I, I read about that. Billy yeah. Crystal came up with the line, and Rob Reiner gave it to his mom to do it. So, I mean, it wasn't in the script, but it came up just a moment before it was said. But even more so than that, what we will give some credence to are things that are not on script at all, were never agreed upon before the cameras rolled. They happened spontaneously. Nobody planned on it until it was already captured on film or on digital these day and age. Uh, And those things are going to make it into what we're talking about. But again, there might be a few spoilers, so prepare yourselves. With filmmaking, it's an interesting decision then because multiple takes are often done for movies and with scenes. Now, there are some instances where it's one take and we're moving on. That's the Frank Sinatra method. There are a lot of cases, though, where they're doing multiple takes or if something goes wrong, they're going to go, you know, we're going to move on. We're going to power through this. Um, uh, There's a lot of different approaches that that Mm -hmm. get done. Or if there's something that went wrong, it's, you know, let's just let's try again. Let's do it again. But it is fun then when decisions are made to leave it in. If something happens, one of the earliest examples I remember seeing in a movie growing up was the Princess Diaries. And maybe people can think of this when they think of the movie. But there's a scene in the movie where uh, Mia and her best friend Lily are talking on the roof of their school. They're somehow able to go up to the roof of their school and they're just talking, stepping around of like, why should I go through with this, with uh, going ahead and being a princess or not? And they're talking through the whole thing, and Mia, who's played by Anne Hathaway, slips on these wet bleachers. And she slips and falls and starts laughing, and then Lily, they, they stay in character enough to go, uh, Lily's like, are you okay? And then Anne Hathaway, to her amazing credit, goes, number three, what was number three? Because they're going through this whole list, and... Then you've got Joe, the bodyguard, who kind of runs up and he's checking on Like, they kept the cameras rolling. It ends up working so well because Mia, at this point, she's still really clumsy and awkward. And they left it in for quote-unquote charming reasons. But yeah, Anne Hathaway confirmed later, yeah, that was definitely unscripted. Yeah, but, people were running to check on Anne Hathaway, not Mia. It just it kind of worked for the story. Yeah, and she was like, no, I'm going to keep powering through. We're going to keep on doing this. So A lot of times when you get an, uh, a cast that is exceptionally well-known for their improvisations, uh, I'm thinking, say, like uh, Anchorman comes to mind. There's something Groundhog that's, Day. Or it, not Groundhog Day. Um, um, well, Groundhog Day had some, any, too. Any, I was thinking of... Uh, of oh 
Um, Caddyshack. That's what I was thinking of. That too, but almost more to the point where uh, with Caddyshack, there was a lot of improv, but it wasn't planned. And famously, Ted Knight, who plays Judge in the movie, really didn't enjoy the filming experience because he wasn't a big improv guy. He was a theater guy. He knew the lines. But when somebody gives you a line that that's not what they're supposed to say and you need to respond to it, he wasn't an improv guy. So he didn't enjoy it because that wasn't planned. Right. But in a lot, in some of the cases, like the movies, they don't really have the frat pack as much these days as they used to. But Will, Will Ferrell and, and Vince Vaughn and that crew... They, Anchorman comes to mind. They would do a version, look, this is what's in the script. Give me a scripted version. Okay, now we're going to film it again. You do whatever comes to mind and you can go heavy improv, you know. And so those kind of things are, they did so much of that with the first Anchorman movie we mentioned before that they were able to get so much out of it they could do a second movie more or less. And I won't go deeper into that because we did that in the last episode. But that was an example, most of what is up on screen to the point where almost the entire cast should have a co-writing credit because they just made it up as the camera rolled. Got to give them credit. Yeah, a ton of credit because that's a lot of creative freedom. And it seems like comedic people are often at the center of this, aren't they? Because they're used to maybe doing that with stand-up. They're used to doing that with telling jokes. They're used to responding off the cuff with that. Bill Murray is one of the most famous examples of this, and we've already mentioned multiple movies of his with this very topic. Ghostbusters is infamous for this. A lot of Ghostbusters, I'm sure people know this, but a lot of it is improv, especially if it's Bill Murray. Yeah. If it's Bill Murray related, there's a very strong chance it was improvised. And how these actors are able to get through the movie with somebody comedic like that without laughing or being able to get these takes done without laughing is astounding because some of what happened too is you have responses that come that have to be made and it's often to they'll do something different with each take that's the crazy thing as well, Dave. You don't know what you're going to get from some of those talents. Ghostbusters in particular, it's already officially written by two of the three, uh, two of the four Ghostbusters. Uh, Dan Aykroyd had really started it. Harold Ramis came in to kind of keep Dan Aykroyd grounded. You can learn more about that later. Uh, director Ivan Reitman had input. But Bill Murray improvised so much. In fact, the entire scene at the library is straight up improvised between the three of them. They knew generally where they were going to go, and then they just went with it. And it is so well done. But Bill Murray in particular, just about any movie that wasn't a Wes Anderson movie that he did, is hugely improvised. Obviously, Ground or uh, Groundhog's Day is one of them, Caddyshack, we touched base on. The entire scene between he and Chevy Chase was entirely improvised. At the time, they were two of the biggest comedic actors that had just come off of Saturday Night Live. And they realized the two biggest stars of the movie had no scene together. So they improvised it. They didn't write it. They just threw them together. And off it went, which is kind of why that scene seems like it kind of drifts a little bit because there was no, there was no MacGuffin there. It's just let's just put them together, see what happens. So there, Bill Murray, any movie he's in that isn't a drama, is got so much improvisation that there's been you know pushes. Well, he should get a writing credit. He wrote some of the best lines in that movie. Well, he didn't write them. He thought them up pretty much the moment he said them, and they were captured on film. So you got to give credit to that. And uh, two more I could think of, of just amazing comedic actors. Billy Crystal's version when he did Miracle Max and The Princess Bride. Yes. Most of which is improvised. Yes. He, He knew where he was going. There were some lines that were written, but he was encouraged by director Rob Reiner 
whatever. Speak Yiddish. Have fun. If you feel something, go with it. And he did. And, of course, Kim, Carol Kane is going along with it. She's a comedic actress. And if you watch some of those shots, you can see Mandy Patinkin burning his lip. Trying not to laugh and ruin the take uh, to the point he had swollen lips for a while after that for biting his own lip. And one more that is maybe the king of this, maybe even more so than Bill Murray, is Robin Williams. Oh, man. The yep. entire face and the cake scene from from Mrs. Doubtfire is entirely improvised. And maybe even more so the radio scenes from Good Morning Vietnam. The director knew what he was getting into, and he just kind of let the camera roll. Hey, Robin, do a radio show and go. If there was a plot element that needed to work its way in, they would. But otherwise, him doing those shows was largely improvised. The camera just got turned on and was left on. And there's a bunch of examples of things like that. So Bill Murray and Robin Williams, Ben Stiller on occasion, they're amazingly talented. Well, Robin Williams even carried that over to a few dramatic roles as Mm -hmm. well, because there is some improvisation that he does in Goodwill Hunting, which was written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And I think I remember reading that Casey Affleck basically improvs like all of his stuff. He's only in in bit part stuff within it since he's part of like just the group of guys there, mm-hmm. the Boston guys. But I think his parts were kind of improv that he did in there. But Robin Williams did improv a line or two in there, including I believe it's his very last line at the very end of the movie when he's reading the letter yeah. that Will leaves him. And he's talking about um, going to uh, talking about going to see a girl, and he he says after that, "Son of a, he stole my line," and <laughs> that was improv. Totally improv. Actually, yeah, just a little moment in there like that. He tells uh, the Matt Damon's character of Will Hunting the story about his wife farting at night and waking him up, waking herself up. And that was totally improvised. Was it? And the shots of Matt Damon listening to the story, he's cracking up. Like he should be in the story, but that's actually Matt Damon listening to Robin Williams for the first time. And he's just basically sitting down in a Robin (laughs) Williams comedy special. The Aladdin script, everything that was written, he asked, can I just go with this? Like, yeah, whatever. And he just went. And to the point... That was the storyline. Oh, man. So it was huge. So there could be a lot of that. And then one ties into you got to go to the 40-year-old virgin with the chest-waxing scene. Oh, man. I I have not watched that movie, but I know about that scene, and I did read that. It's going to be impossible to fake this without great use of CGI, which when did the movie come out? 2004, 05, somewhere in there? Somewhere around there. It wasn't there yet. In fact, when Steve Carell showed up to promote the movie on The Tonight Show, he took off his shirt to show bare chest. And sure enough, if you've seen the movie, the hair getting ripped off, funnily observed by Chris Rudd in the scene, you look like a man-o'-lantern because it looks like a two eyes and a mouth. And that's exactly what he had starting to grow back some peach fuzz because it had been months since they'd filmed it on The Tonight Show. So clearly they did it for real. You could, And you only got the one take. So you could see the actors, the other actors in the scene, trying not to break the scene. They couldn't stop from laughing, but that kind of worked for the scene. But even the the girl doing the wax job, she's trying to keep it together. They just kind of had to have the camera set up and let her rip. And that was all improvised, live more or less. Yeah, comedy just affords itself to this so easily. Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yeah. Infamous for that. So much of that movie is improv. I mean, you get moments that come out of it, like when the one that I always come back to is when Jim Carrey as Lloyd Christmas is leaving the bar 
and he looks on the wall, and there's this this picture of the newspaper from the moon landing. And he suddenly realizes in that moment that it happened. No way. And he, yeah, no way. And then he leaves, and his back is turned, and the scene ends with him yelling, We landed on the moon! <laughs> and totally then was, improvised. Then there was the big gulps as well. Yeah. Big gulps, huh? Well, see ya. Those guys were not extras. They just happened to be there, and he kind of brought them into the scene, and they got the look like, Who the heck are you, and why are you talking to me? Because they had no idea. I don't think that they were even a movie. The director said about 15% of the movie was improvised or tweaked before shooting, and uh, apparently that included Jim Carrey making the most annoying sound yeah. in the world as you know, well. It was funnily said that they wanted to get another comedic actor to play the role that Jeff Daniels had played, but Jim Carrey didn't want that. For one, he didn't want another comedian trying to one-up him, but what really worked was somebody to respond and react like an actor would. Yes. And that's what Jeff Daniels has said many times since. I, it was not my job to be the funny one. It was to react to what Jim was doing and just respond. Like a half second late, like he's not fully awake, just kind of off. And that's what he did so well. That's why, for comedic reasons, the quote-unquote straight man works so well. Yeah. Because you have some somebody who can keep things grounded or add a little levity. But then you also get the responses, which th- that person kind of speaks for all of us then of – what in the world is going on here with this? What was it? Harry, Harry Dunn, I think, was his character's name. I wouldn't call him the straight man, but compared to the two of them, probably. Yeah. Here, well, still a dumb guy but yeah. in, in the context of the dumber. movie. Dumber. Dumber. I don't know. You, you could say it's one or the other. But you know about the usual suspects. This is a and famous one, one yeah. Yeah, yeah. You want to talk about that one since I know that's one of your your favorite movies and one of your favorite plot twist Comedi- related movies. Comedians are are well known for improv moments that were not scripted, but then there are times where it's not meant to be funny at all. The Usual Suspects is one of mine and Hoove's favorite movies. We've talked about it before. And one of the more famous scenes from the movie is actually so well known that it pretty much became the pollster for the movie. You get these five criminals that are brought together, and it's the first time you see them all together in the lineup shot. Well, for whatever reason, on the day of filming, they just couldn't keep it together, and they're laughing. And to hear Kevin Pollack, who was played one of the characters, tell the story, Benicio Del Toro, one of the usual suspects, he was gassy that day and couldn't stop farting. <laughs> and everybody that's supposed to be these hardened criminals, they're all <laughs> laughing, and, <laughs> just, and it just kind of devolved. And Brian Singer, who was the voice of the lineup inspector who's yelling, guys, get it together, is the voice of the guy. And he's legitimately getting annoyed with the actors because they can't get it straight. And according to Brian Singer, that day he thought the whole day was ruined. But they saved it in the edit because all five of these characters, these criminals, they're supposed to be so contempt with the law process that this is a big joke to them anyway. They're just irreverent about it. And it worked. So they saved it in the edit and they put it together so that it works. But even these characters are screwing around, but it worked for the story. And and none of it was supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be a, a cold scene. And they do have one or two shots that were as scripted, but the rest of it we're just watching these actors not be able to not crack up and break character, but it worked. And it kind of worked because that's how they were acting, just being at the police station anyway. When you extend it out to that whole chunk of the movie, that that specific chunk, I mean, that's just how they were. So it all ends up kind of adding up pretty well with itself. There's more. Oh, that was one that you brought up. If you got one. 
Uh, well. Or did I put you on the spot? Do you want to get into that Indiana Jones one that I referenced earlier? Sure. Get into that? So there, there's a lot of famous scenes from Indiana Jones, and in particular Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was the first one. That was the one that got it all rolling. And there's actually multiple examples involving Harrison Ford that we could talk about, not just with Indiana Jones, but also Star Wars, but we can get to that later. But the, the one that comes to mind, though, it, it's, a, it's a great scene. It makes you laugh in the midst of a really tense moment in the movie, and that is during the chase scene that is going on where through the streets of Cairo yeah through Cairo where Marion has been has been taken or is, is getting to the point where she's going to be taken and presumed dead at one point then and Indy is chasing around trying to find her but there's also these assailants who are out there including this guy who is wielding this very impressive sword and very skillful with it and Indy just guns him down to the delight of the crowd where it's bringing a gun to a knife fight basically is the the whole analogy there. Well, that was actually not planned for. Harrison Ford, according to what I've read, was under the weather. And by under the weather, he had dysentery. Pretty much everybody on the cast had dysentery. Yeah, they were struggling. And it was hot. And you can tell just with, during that whole scene, it's like, Wow, he is he is sweltering in the heat. You you kind of see that. It's like, hey, this this looks pretty authentic. That's because he was. Like he was struggling with it. And so it was Harrison Ford's idea where he's like, Why are we gonna waste time with this? Let's just do it this you this know, way. The this line simply. was Spielberg had said the line was, Can't we just shoot the sucker? You know, let's yeah. do that. Yeah. There was a big sequence planned and it nope. And it ends up being great because it's just it's classic indie where it's just like where he's kind of like, I'm over this. You know, he kind of carries himself with a little bit of that that kind of aura about him. And it just fit that to a T. And I love how the crowd that's around them just starts going, ah, yeah. And then you as an audience are just laughing like that's hysterical. Because you it, don't see it coming. You're like, oh, here yeah. we go. Oh, that was that was harsh. Yeah, because yeah, I think Harrison Ford also said he's like, I mean, I've got this gun. Why not just use it? Which is funny because Indy's also got the whip, which he so commonly uses. It's like, well, I've got this gun. I might as well just do it, especially for how he was clearly feeling in real life at the time. So great example there. I don't know if you had memorable any, moment. I don't know if you had any others from Indiana Jones, but that's for, the big one. Yeah, that's the really big one. But why don't you? Why don't we dovetail? So keep with Harrison Ford and go to Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, exactly. So. Another famous line. There are many from Empire Strikes Back, but there's a very famous line that, again, fits so well with Harrison Ford's let's just get to the point kind of curt nature about him that he sometimes has with some of these lines and some of these things. In the original script, when Harrison, when Han Solo is about to be dropped into carbonate and frozen, of course, Leia leans in and kisses him, and they finally get to the point where all of that tension between them as far as the feelings that they have for each other that are clearly there just breaks, and she says, I love you. And Han Solo was supposed to respond and say, I love you too. And they filmed it that way over and over and over and over and over. It just isn't working. It Nobody's happy with it, and it's just, well, try, I, don't think about it, just go. Irvin Kirshner directs him one more time, just whatever. And that's where the famous line, I love you, I know, came up. That's right. And the way he says it too, it's not just, I know. But there's also this kind of doomed manner in the which, in, in which he says it where he he knows and yet there's nothing they can do about it right now because he's 
about to be frozen, and it seems like he's going for good. Of course, until the next movie. But it all adds up really well then in the end, and especially for the tone of the movie and the tone of that scene, it worked out really great. Yeah, it's gone down as one of the more famous lines uh, short of the big twist at the end, which was scripted. That's a whole other story. Uh, And while it wasn't in the script, it kind of was and needed to be out of the script. So that doesn't really count. Um, but um, Very in line with Han Solo's aura, too, of just, I knew all along. And yeah. yet at the same time, you can tell he's very defeated as he's saying it, too. As he, you know, there was even behind the scenes, he might not come back for Return of the Jedi. They didn't really know. So they needed a way to literally put him on ice so that they could thaw him out if need be. Or, ah, yeah, something went wrong with the hibernation process. Yeah, he's gone. You know, and it could go either way. And that was behind the scenes, too. They didn't know if he was going to make it back for the third one as an actor. So they needed to come up with something. Exactly. Yeah. All right, I've given a couple. Fire away. I like examples where something was filmed that it just happened to be filmed and whoever was on screen didn't necessarily know they were even being filmed or didn't. Uh, they were just sitting there waiting for their cue to go. And there's a couple of examples I can think of. One of them, Dirty Dancing. It's one of the more famous shots from Dirty Dancing where you have the characters played by Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. They're kind of crawling towards each other before they start this dance. That was just the actors warming up before they were going to start whatever the routine was. But the camera was rolling, and it caught that. And they loved the moment. And it was completely, the chemistry between the two of them was very, very good. That has been said since the fact that they weren't getting along in that movie all that well. But the chemistry was there. And that was a moment of them not playing their characters per much as it was the two of them just being caught in a moment that was supposed to not be filmed, but it was. And it really, really worked. And it's one of the more iconic shots from the movie. You see it in all the trailers. Uh, planes, trains, and automobiles is another great one that comes oh, man. up. Speaking of comedic actors being well, involved. not in this case. Oh, I mean, really? No. I mean, I'm sure there was some moments that were scripted, but I kind of get the vibe that every F-bomb that uh, Steve Martin hurls at the rental car salesman were scripted verbatim. Um, but this was one that wouldn't be one you'd suspect. One of the last shots of the movie after Steve Martin and John Candy, they part at the train station and finally... Steve Martin is getting away from this guy, and he's on the L train, and he's on his way home finally. And there's a shot where you have, it's almost a montage. There's Steve Martin finally sitting and kind of remembering back on the trip that he has finally just finished up with, and you get these cutback shots with all these scenes between the two of them. And that was actually something shot while Steve Martin is waiting for the role to start. You know, we're setting up some stuff in the background. You know, he's just sitting in the, in the train waiting for his cue to start going, whatever the scene was going to be. But he just, wherever his mind was going, was going to places. And for all we know, he was thinking about, you know, something funny he said on The Tonight Show just before that. Who knows? But the facial expressions he was making, wherever his mind was going, they really, really liked what was happening. And John Hughes really liked the the version. And they used it and cut it in with that montage. None of that was planned. They saw something and decided, I like what I'm seeing. I don't know how I can use it. Let's do something. And they did it in the edit bay. So whatever the scene was supposed to be, it might have just been him sitting on the subway going home with a kind of expression, but that's not what they got on film. And it just worked so exceptionally well. And they turned it into something completely different then. It turns into something – the movie is – 
it's a dramedy, heavy on the comedy, but it's certainly got some tender moments, and then it leads to the big revelation at the end that I won't spoil for this particular podcast, but there's a revelation that you start to see the groundwork being laid right there in that scene where the realization starts to come to uh, Steve Martin's character, like, wait, wait, wait a minute, there's something not quite the same about that that's not right, you know what I mean? Yeah. There was one more I had that was, um, there was a couple, Star Trek Four. I'm a big fan of this movie. I like Star Trek anyway. But in Star Trek IV, they go back to the 20th century. The movie was made in 1986, and so it's set largely in 1986. And the crew of the Enterprise, for reasons that don't matter for the sake of this podcast, they go back to San Francisco, 1986. They're looking for where they can find some sort of an aircraft carrier at the time for something that ties into the plot. It doesn't matter. They put the actor and actress, uh, the guy who plays Chekhov and the gal who plays Uhura, literally onto the streets of San Francisco, like guerrilla filmmaking, had the camera kind of hidden, and now these two in character are asking legitimate passers-by on a sidewalk, just trying to cross the street, do you know where the naval vessels are? And, of course, Chekhov is Russian. This is during the height of the Cold War. Excuse me, can you direct me to the naval vessels? And these pedestrians are just walking by until... This random pedestrian lady, friendly, probably in town from Minnesota, swung by, hmm, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's over there, and was just the friendliest gal. Well, they had to track her down because they liked the shot. They couldn't put it in the movie unless she'd signed off right? because she spoke. And so they had to run and get her permission and have her sign off, and that's why she's in the movie. If she just happened to <laughs> respond to these actor and actress in their character, and just, oh, just trying to be helpful, very Minnesota-like. And I'll give you one more that comes to mind that was— That's a good reminder to people that, hey, if you're friendly, when someone is asking you a question on the street, you might just get yourself in a film. Yeah. There's a scene that I think crosses the boundary between whether they knew they were being filmed or not. Pretty Woman. One of the scenes that is best known from this, this. Yeah. there's a scene where Richard Gere is about to take Julia Roberts out for a fancy night on the town, and she's getting gussied up to the nines. And he opens up this jewelry box that's got a very expensive necklace and very expensive earrings. They're not a gift. They're on loan. But she's almost tentative about reaching into the box to even touch this stuff. And Richard Gere's holding the box open, not like, not unlike you would open up a ring box when you're proposing. And as she gets her fingers to the box, he quickly <laughs> closes the box really quick on her fingers, and it elicits an absolutely genuine laugh out of Julia Roberts. And what her smile when it's completely on full megawatt and her laugh together on full display, and it was such an endearing moment. Even Richard Gere kind of snickered at it. He just caught her. And it was just one of those moments. It was not planned. He just did it on the whim. And it was such a charming moment. It's in the movie. And it's one of those, like the crawling scene in Dirty Dancing. It's in every promo you'll ever see of the movie. Totally unscripted. And I don't think even though they knew they were being filmed. I'm not sure. Sometimes things come together just on the spot like you described like that. But sometimes it's not necessarily from the actors. There's somebody behind the scenes who comes up with an idea or observes something that gets then becomes part of it. One that is very famous is Casablanca. So one of the most famous lines from that movie is, uh, by the way, this was a movie that the script was not totally finished on when they started it. They they got into it and the script kind of came together That's most movies as the time. it was playing out. And that led to Humphrey Bogart giving the famous line of here's looking at you, kid. No, you can't say it like that. Here's looking at you, kid. Uh, that's better. Just like that. He says that, of course, multiple times to Ingrid Bergman's character and uh, to Ilsa. 
And it actually came from Humphrey Bogart saying that to Ingrid Bergman off set away from filming where I think she was playing poker. I read she was, she was playing cards or playing poker with, with some of the other people around there. And he would say that to her just for fun as she was playing there. And then he brought it into the movie itself. Similar example came from Titanic and from the famous line there that everyone does whenever they stand at the front of a boat, whether it's Michael Scott or you, when you're on the boat out on the lake, I'm the king of the world. James Cameron came up with that on the spot as they were getting ready to film that scene. It was not in the script. He kind of took it as they ran with it there and was like, Leo, you're saying this. I'm the king of the world. And it now has become a signature part of that movie. You had to say something on the front of the boat. I, I love when people do that in real life. Usually somebody from another boat will respond in a non-flattering way. <laughs> well, I think of The Office with that, where, where maybe Steve Carell was making it up, too. But, well, actually, probably not, because uh, there's one point where Jim says earlier in that, that Booze Cruise episode of, I'm going to keep track of the time on how long it takes until Michael says, uh, does the Titanic line. And then, of course, there's Michael, and the king of the world, in his way. I'll give a dovetail with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, there is a scene in Django Unchained, a Tarantino movie. I wondered if movie. that's what you were going to bring up. This is one where he's a plantation owner, and he's getting very dramatic, and he's getting really worked up, and he's and now he's getting even physically animated, and he takes his hand, and he slams it down on the table, and there's broken glass, and you see his hand start to bleed. That's not fake blood. There's real broken glass on the table, and DiCaprio just slammed his hand down on a broken wine glass and really, for real, cut his hand, but kept going with the scene. And so when he starts waving his hand around and there's blood, that's not movie blood. That's actually Leonardo DiCaprio oozing out of his cut. And after the fact, that they uh, kind of bandage him up and, and fix him up. But, you know... There maybe one day I don't want to go do a topic with this, but there are moments where things go wrong on a movie set and people can get hurt or worse. There's moments, and that's one of them, where people legitimately get hurt on a movie set. And there's another one, the only one that I'll really mention. There's others that are not worth getting into because I don't want to go that dark. Right. But Back to the Future Part Two is another one, and Back to the Future is one of my all-time favorite movies, all of them. Um, but in Part Two. There's the reenactment of the skateboard chase. Of course, now it's on hoverboards. And Griff and his crew, they get catapulted into the windows of this redesigned clock tower. And he's got his gang members with him. And one of those gang members is a gal. And they can only film this scene one time. And the gal member of the gang, when she fell, they're on wires as they crash through this glass plating front of this futuristic clock tower. They fall into this big bag. And the way she hit something, she bounced off of a pillar that wasn't planned, went through the window and lost her trajectory. And when she fell, she missed the bag entirely and landed on hard concrete and got legitimately hurt. And you could see the scene where she does crash down and got hurt. They only filmed it one time. They couldn't do it another time. You see the hit. And she is alive. She's relatively well, but she got significantly injured. And the fact that that injury is in that shot is, that's something. So yeah. there's worse stories with movie accidents, and that's a podcast for somebody else to do. I don't want to go down the Vic Morrow Road or anything along those lines, but uh, that's something else that can happen. So it does come up sometimes. Yeah, uh, to uh, a little bit along those lines, but in terms of a in a violent scene in a movie that also had 
something improv attached to it. Did you know that about The Godfather and one of the scenes in there? It's just give and take? Talking about Pauly when he gets oh. when he gets taken out. So in that scene, um, Pauly, who is responsible for almost getting The Godfather himself killed in a hit, so then they got to take care of him. So then he gets wiped out, and then there's there's a line that comes with that from one of the, the lieutenants who ends up doing the task, but he picked up a cannoli on the way. And so then there's a line that got dropped in there that was included of leave the gun, take the cannoli that's in there. It's like, wait, what? We, we just had a guy get knocked off, a rather serious scene here, and then there's a moment of sudden hilarity included in there of leave the gun, Take the cannoli. I think one of the there. reasons it works is because it's it's such a cavalier attitude toward life. Eh, let's just take this guy's life, even though it quote unquote might be deserved. Hey, there's a dessert in there. Take that. That's almost what matters more. No, don't bring the gun with. Leave yep. it. But take the dessert. Get the dessert. That that yeah. For a long time when I was a little kid, I didn't get the significance. I didn't know what a cannoli was <laughs> until I actually got to go to a restaurant and had a cannoli, and I recommend the cannoli. Now it makes sense. Quite lovely. Do you want to talk about the shining? Yeah, well, that's just a nice, good, quick line um, where you have... Speaking of famous lines. Oh, yeah, where you have Stephen, uh, 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 Stanley Kubrick is so renowned of it's got to be specific. The one of the things that, I mean, he'll shoot a scene 97 times to get it absolutely right. But the fact that one of the more well-repeated lines is one of the rare ad-libs maybe in any Kubrick movie. And that's where uh, Jack Nicholson's character is axing through the door into the bedroom. And he said a couple of different things, and I don't remember what was supposed to be on the script, but it just occurred to him when The Tonight Show would begin, back in the day with Johnny Carson, Ed McMahon, here's Johnny! And that's what he said. As he's coming through the curtain yeah. and out in front of the studio audience. Yeah. I would have thought it would have been funny if on some Halloween edition of The Tonight Show, rather than Ed say it, just have the voiceover, the demented, here's Johnny! That... Oh. Kind of, and it's been spoofed now, and that itself was a spoof. So oh. it's being spoofed of a spoof of a spoof. <laughs> yeah, the, the Simpsons one is one of my favorites when Homer does that during one of the Treehouse of Horrors where he hatchets through two different rooms and they're not in there. The family's not in there as oh, he's yeah. going crazy because he goes from here's Johnny to David Letterman. And then he finally goes and he reels off the 60 minutes opening. <laughs> and that's, I gotta love the Simpsons. The first 10 yeah. years in particular. Yeah, so... that. And all of that coming from a completely unscripted moment. It, it's funny how many of these are iconic moments. Yeah. And how so many of these iconic moments were ones that were come up with on – they came up with it on the fly. That's what amazes me about what some of these people are able to come up with, whether it's the actors themselves or the directors or somebody behind the scenes. or It's proof that if you just keep the camera rolling or you let people's minds work a little bit, it's funny what can be produced out of those kinds of moments and sometimes just letting it naturally happen like i know you're leaving a pretty big bullet in the chamber i've for, got one or two more here it well one of them's from your one of your all-time favorite movies dave and that wasn't the one i was uh lo- rounding up on the revolver here but i'm not sure which one is specifically you're you're starting to allude to but you can feel free to nudge me oh uh a certain horror movie at sea i'm not picking it up yet 
You're not? No. A, a certain horror movie at sea oh. involving a boat ah. and a fish? Yes. Yes. A lot of that. Do you want to save that one? Or? Well, well, we could certainly go there. <laughs> there is a lot of that movie, though, that wound up not as scripted. And it is... Um, there, of course, there's the line that was ad-libbed that when you first really get your first good look at the shark and it pops up just as Roy Scheider's chief Brody character is shoveling chum into the water and the, the shark just pops up out of nowhere. It's a good jump scare moment. Oh, it and takes he, everybody by surprise. And the chief backs up into the cabin where Quint is getting ready to do some stuff and you're going to need a bigger boat. And that was ad-libbed moment. But there was a lot of that movie that was not in the script. Now, the, mo- the yeah. movie, of course, is based on the book by Peter Benchley, and the differences between the book and the movie are significant enough that to see the movie and read the first book are not necessarily the same experiences. They're very different. Um, there's a lot of similarity, obviously, but it's, it's so different, it's, it's drastifying. The point when they came up with um, the script for the movie, it, a lot of it wasn't working. And so... Because the shark also wasn't working, that necessitated a lot of things. The very first scene in the movie is the shark attack with the gal Chrissy Watkins in the ocean, midnight swim. You're supposed to, according to the script, see the shark. Well, the shark wasn't working, so they had to find other ways. They filmed that scene without a shark at all. And it's terrifying because it's almost what you don't see that made it work. And that's kind of, I argue, and I think a lot of people would also, that's what makes the movie work. Because had it gone according to script, you were going to see that shark left, right, and center. And it wasn't working. They couldn't make it work. So they had to get creative. And the camera itself becomes the shark. You see it at water level. You see it under the water looking from the shark's perspective, more or less. And other great tricks, including not seeing the shark at all during a shark attack scene. And beyond even that, once they were done doing some other things and the shark still wasn't working, they had to shoot all the non-shark scenes. And that gave them time to craft some of those scenes from a script that didn't work. You had an amazing cast. Robert Shaw was in that and Richard Dreyfuss, one of his earlier roles, Lorraine Gary, and this upcoming guy you hadn't really heard much of, Steven Spielberg, who'd go on to an amazing career. They would sit down and take a look at a scene that wasn't working on paper and they would workshop it and make it happen, just like actors would do in a workshop. And then they would do the scene, and it was crafted. You had little character moments, and those scenes, even if it had nothing to do with the shark, it really worked. It speaks to the power of fear and the way that you can create fear, but also music, too. Oh, and yeah. And they used music exceptionally well in there, too, to be able to create that, even if they had to improvise with it a little bit They had well. They had done a screening of that movie, just real quick, because you brought up the music. They, the music wasn't in it yet. It's like watching a science fiction, you know, heavy special effects movie, but the effect shots aren't in yet. You know, maybe something temporary. And it was okay, but not great. The the unsung character of that movie, not the shark, is the music. And that certainly scripted, so to speak. But if it wasn't there, it wasn't there. How aware are you of the improvised moment in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? I know where you're going. Very okay. Yeah, maybe some don't. But it was it was some. It's I think it kind of counts. But it it wasn't on. It was it was not scripted, but it was planned before it happened. And uh, so, if you want to talk about it, go for it. Yeah, but Gene Gene Wilder was pretty big on making sure that this was included. From what I've read, his involvement really hinged on I want it to be like this. Yeah, because. It set a tone for what we had with Willy Wonka in the movie. And, of course, the early part of the movie is getting to going to the chocolate factory. These kids trying to be the ones who are going to get to go and get that golden ticket. 
So you don't see Willy Wonka himself for a long time in the movie until you finally get to that point where they are all outside the factory, the crowds are gathered out there, and finally the reclusive Willy Wonka is going to reveal himself. And what does he do? He comes out and he's limping, he's struggling, he has a cane, he seems like a very sickly individual. And these kids, you can just tell, they're like, this is what we've been building ourselves toward? This is the guy in charge of all this? But then what does he do? He somersaults and he finishes it out and gives a flourish to the crowd then. But what that signified was Willy Wonka is not somebody to be trusted. That's what it symbolized. You don't know whether he'll be telling the truth or not. Exactly. And that then sets the stage for all that follows in the factory. And Gene Wilder was pretty big on this is how I want it to be. Make sure you keep it this way. Because like you said, there was planning that went into it. But that itself, that finished product, that was a a collaborative effort. Yeah, and to get to that point of improvisation. Yeah, it it probably wasn't in the first draft of the script. It's not in the book because they're based off of books. But I think when he started getting involved behind the scenes and they're long before they got to the set, you know what I want to do for the character? And I think that's where it came from, from what I've heard. So unscripted, yeah, but collaborated into well before it was shot, absolutely. But you know what it still was? It was a good, memorable moment. Pure imagination. <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> what else do you have, Dave? There's a great line that everyone remembers from Midnight Cowboy. And it's because yeah, it's because yep. the real world intersected with a film set. You got <laughs> John Voight and Dustin Hoffman walking across the street in New York City, and they actually shot it in New York City. And uh, some taxi cab or whoever it was took a turn they weren't supposed to. They got around the barricade or whatever, and they almost run over Dustin Hoffman in the intersection to the point where he slams his hand on the cab without missing a beat. I'm walking here! And that has become... An iconic line that is not in the script. That's Dustin Hoffman legitimately reacting to almost being hit by a car. And if you look at John Voight's face, he's, I mean, reacting naturally. So it works for the scene. And they stayed in character. Dustin Hoffman and John Voight just keep walking and just pick up where they left off, you know, just before they almost got hit by a car. That line is so iconic. Heck, I even think it's in one of the Back to the Future movies. It gets spoofed. It's all over the place, and it's just one of those little magic moments. They could have said, okay, well, that was that was a close call. Okay, let's do the scene again and not get hit by the car. But that's the version they left in. Did you know that there was a line in Silence of the Lambs that was improvised? Was this when he mimics her? Yes. Yes. With the accent. I was just reading about this here, and I hadn't realized that, and that – Jodie Foster's reaction is genuine. It's an authentic reaction of shock to Anthony Hopkins, of course, as Hannibal Lecter, making fun of Clarice Starling's accent that she has, which is kind of one of those definable things about Clarice Starling. West Virginia. Yeah, that that kind of accent that she's got there. Uh, Quid pro quo, doctor. That's the one that I always do to imitate her. But then he, when he's figuring her out or like working on learning her, he's... imitates her accent and kind of fakes it while making fun of her father. Was he a coal miner? Uh, Things like that. And her reaction was authentic to that because that was something that he came up with on the spot to needle her. And as he's trying to figure her out, learn about her a little bit. You know, even after the fact, Jodie Foster asks, you know, in many years since the movie, you guys ever talked? She's like, no, I never even talked to him then. She was legitimately unnerved by him. And maybe it was a little bit of method acting on both parts, and she kind of stayed away from him, so she'd be kind of 
cautious around not only Anthony Hopkins, but the character of Hannibal Lecter also. So that was an interesting one. You know, another one where you just kind of let the actor go and you get some memorable moments uh, about the same time uh, was Taxi Driver. There's a very famous scene where you have Robert De Niro in the mirror and Martin Scorsese is well known for letting the actors kind of do their thing. And the entire scene in the mirror, which has also brought forth an amazing line, which has been credited to Robert De Niro. You talking to me? Are you, are you talking to me? Yeah. Well, I'm the only one here. So you must be talking to me. That's become a movie line that is not only iconic in and of itself. It's an interesting part in where the character is devolving because it's basically watching a guy devolve into some kind of madness. Uh, speaking of a fixation on Jodie Foster. But it's also, um, it's something that is so repeated in so many ways. Even De Niro himself, not the best movie, but it came many years, I think around 2000, he did Rocky and Bullwinkle. And there's a scene where he's doing it in a German accent, because you must be talking to me. That funny was watching De Niro parody his own earlier role. I think he, did he win the Oscar for that role? He was up for it. I don't remember if he won it or not. I think he did. Maybe that was uh, The Godfather 2 that he finally won it. But anyway, that's another iconic version. Any others that you've got on that list? I've kind of exhausted most of mine. I got one more, and we'll stay with Scorsese. And funny enough, I just watched this movie this past weekend, The Wolf of Wall Street. Ah, yes. There is something that Matthew McConaughey does when he's warming up that Leonardo DiCaprio kind of stumbled on, and he does the thing where he's beating his chest, and he's kind of... And it's just some kind of a warm-up exercise that Matthew McConaughey just does for real. And there's a couple of shots where De Niro, or uh, DiCaprio, is sitting there reacting naturally. And there's actually a shot where it's, you know, Scorsese had said there's a shot where DiCaprio kind of looks off camera, and he's looking at Scorsese, like, for permission. Do I, what do I do here? Do I keep going? And they worked it into the script. And since McConaughey uh, was, I think, in the middle of filming or had just finished filming uh, the, not the Lincoln Lawyer, what's the one where he's got AIDS in the movie? He won the Oscar for it. Uh, Dallas Buyers Club. So that's why he looks so thin in that shot, because that's about the time they filmed that he was either in the middle of filming or just after they'd filmed it. And uh, they filmed his scenes in only one week's time. He's a small part in the movie. And they filmed it up front, and they decided we're going to bring this into the movie. And not just that scene where DiCaprio is responding naturally to what is this freak show doing. They worked it into a major recurring, not really a plot line, but kind of a background character development. It comes up throughout the movie, where DiCaprio himself, even later in the movie, (laughs) just because it was something that presumably Matthew McConaughey learned in acting class, was employing on the set. And it just got worked in, not just to leave it in, but got worked even deeper into the movie. And that's a very, oh, I can't say very recent. That movie's about 10 years old, but it's uh, its a good one. Wow. The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> and it now, became a recurring yeah. moment throughout the movie. By the way, I looked it up. De Niro nominated for Best Actor okay. for Taxi Driver. Just yeah, nominated. I though. think it was Godfather 2 when, when he finally won the Oscar. Okay. So, just okay. to follow that up. Anyway... I love learning about those things because some of these you can just you can just sort of tell in movies or maybe you watch one and you go was that actually planned and then you kind of want to dig into it a little bit because these are some of the most famous examples that we've given but 
the amount of them is is vast and and it speaks to the skill of the people involved in making these films the creativity that is involved with them in making it and the idea that maybe you are not always beholden to having to stick to the script stick to everything that's been planned out for because there's very talented people involved here behind the scenes like the people who, who can come up with something on the fly as they're going or when it comes to the actors themselves, having the the quick thinking to be able to go, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I think Jack Nicholson saying you can't handle the truth in A Few Good Men was not quite how it was in the script. That that was him giving a slightly different delivery of what became an iconic line. And when they're doing there there's an extra authenticity, it feels like, with some of these things. And maybe that's part of why... So many of these lines are that, that are iconic lines in filmography are ones that were come up with on they came up with on the spot and they have that extra authenticity attached to them. Let me put it to you like this. Um, you never seen you, every now and again you'll see somebody accepting some lifetime achievement award or whatever, whether it's involved in entertainment or somebody CEO or whatever. And the good ones always say some version of, if you want to be the best, you need to surround yourself with the best and trust that they know what they're doing. We're all in this together. It's a collaborative process. Um, but I'll give it to you kind of like this. Those moments where you're not overly controlling everything. I'll use professional wrestling as an example. Oh, man. I used to be a big pro wrestling fan when I was a kid, and I'm just not anymore. And every now and again, I'll be flipping around, and it's on, and I might watch it for a moment. It is so controlled. You can tell there's like one guy writing everything, not just what happens, but what is said. It's very scripted. Pro- it's not the NWO unseating power no, no, in no. pro wrestling anymore. This is behind the scenes where it's literally a script, and you've got somebody who's not the best actor, but they're some sort of a colorful person, but they're trying to say the words of somebody else. back. And so it's just not what it was. But when it was less controlled back in the day, when it was really, really good, they knew what was going to happen generally, but they knew the beat points. All right, you need to get from here, you're going to take a corner here, then you're going to take the last corner here, and you're going to end there. How you make that arc happen is up to you. And whether it was in a match or whether it was something that somebody said, that's when the most colorful remembered things got said. Because nobody knew that so-and-so was going to say or do exactly the way that it came across. But wow, that was really something. And that was something that was in a lot of ways the spur of the moment. Even though they knew generally where it was going to go, they kind of made it up on the fly. When you have you talking to me, that's not in the script, but it is one of possibly the most memorable part of the entire movie. So... Those moments that weren't planned, that are put together by a group of people that are not under a thumb of somebody that's going to be my way and only my way and that's it. Jeff Bridges had famously said every time he says man in The Big Lebowski, he's not ad-libbing a moment to put in, hey man, that's all in the script. Every, hey man, the Coen brothers had written in and they were like, look. He said, there's surprisingly very little ad-libbing, including the word man. Man, it's like, man, a beverage here, man. Every man is in the script. It's a great movie. It comes together. It's clearly collaborative, but it was very controlled versus moments that are not. And when those make it in, something special can happen. Takes the right person to take it when it's that scripted like that and still make it sound like it's well, been more ad-libbed. He's the dude, man. And he still abides. There's a beverage here, man. (laughs) Here's our challenge personally off the air when we get done. Try to work in as many Lebowskis into the rest of your daily conversation as you can. I hope you have a meeting on Zoom. This will be fun. 
Rick and Nick Talk Flex is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2, just down from the airport, man. Go check out some great movies there, man. Man, they got all kinds of great stuff going. They got 550 movie nights. You're out of your element, who? Tuesday. Oh, sorry. $6 student nights, $6 school nights that they've got there as well. You know, that's that's on Camrose by the In-N-Out Burger. We could. Oh, man. Lebowski-isms. <laughs> oh, I, I've never had In-N-Out Burger, so I would enjoy that. I don't think they yeah. have them in Minnesota, but no, if they did, sadly, they're on Camrose, not too far not. from the what have you. Next time, we're going to talk Christopher Nolan as we're getting ready for the release of Oppenheimer. So we've talked about a few directors here and there down the line with this podcast. We're going to deep dive into the career of Chris Nolan. If you want to hear Hoove in a happy place, I'm pretty sure the next episode, we're going to be there. I'm thinking of the dude leaning back in his chair, just looking as comfortable as can be, which was mimicked by Thor himself um, in one of one of the Marvel movies. That's kind of how I'm going to be next episode of just like... The Hoove Abides, Bring man. it on, man. The Hoove Abides. Until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm the Dave, man. <laughs> and we will see you at the movies. <laughs>